Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the Herb Alpert School of Music at UCLA. My name is Gigi Johnson. I'm your host and a faculty member in the Music History and Industry Program. Please share our podcast on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, wherever you enjoy your podcast. Please pass it to two or three friends. What do you get when you match computers, a DJ, scratch tracks, pirate radio, and music creation apps that are like new musical instruments? You get Matt Black. He has been and is part of the band Cold Cut. He is a core part of the indie label Ninja Tune, and he is the creator of apps, which he calls musical instruments that are things ranging from Ninja Jam, which he released four years ago, to the most recent release, Jam Pro, where you can be creating music from the beauty of your iPad. He covers the waterfront from his early history and work in pirate radio through his development of a variety of apps, what he's learned in launching apps and when, when both serendipity and hard work has paid off, his perspectives on anything from the climate emergency to why the local library bookmobile changed his life by exposing him to key books that made him learn to computer program before he had a computer. So please enjoy this incredibly diverse conversation with Matt Black. At the end, you can hear how to get a hold of his various apps, but also how you can connect with the music that he is doing and how you can appreciate his current empty desk. A few episodes ago, we had Omid from Tully, and we had them talking about how Joyner Lucas was looking for a solution for creating music using his cell phone, his smartphone, because that's where he was all the time. And he took that tool that he'd been building for himself and then launched it as Tully. What is the origin story? of Jampro and why it's a solution you're bringing to other creators now? Well, so a question that has quite a long answer in terms of an arc. I got into computers and synths and, and DJing actually in the 70s when I was just a schoolboy with my little crew of geeky friends. And then when I was at university, I was hanging out with my mates and listening to a lot of mainly black music from the States and being influenced by hip hop and tried to learn how to do that scratch mixing that we could see on a, a very few programs that made their way over here. And we became fascinated by it. And I, I was sort of the one of the posse who took it on and got a set of decks and learned to scratch mix. And then in 1987, I made a record with my partner, Jonathan Moore, as Cold Cut and released that. And that was about taking bits from records which later became called which later became called samples and then putting them together to make a kind of sound collage and as we started to get more successful then there was a, a, a demand for us to do live shows and I didn't just want to take my whole studio with me I didn't want to take the approach of taking a band of musicians with me and I wanted to do more than just DJing so as I had a background in programming I started to design software that would enable me to montage, improvise and um, 
play with sound live. And I guess Jam Pro is the sort of result of that journey to make a new so, kind of instrument for samples. So, Matt, you and Jonathan re re released your first album when you were how old? I was 28 when I released uh, Say Kids What Time Is It. It was just a 12-inch, a couple of tracks on a self-released white label 12-inch. And then how did you end up training or self-training for computer programming? Well, that goes back to the 70s when I read a book called The Shockwave Rider by John Brunner. I was really into science and I was into sci-fi big time. And some kind librarian at the county council put that book just after it was released, I, I worked out, I sort of I looked it up and worked out that someone must have made that available to me in my little village the year it was released. And it blew my mind with its talk about a networked future and this uh, young rebel fighting back against a kind of totalitarian oligarch state using computers as his, his ability with computers as his weapon and skill. Um, so this inspired you at your local library to then stay at your local library and learn from the library? Or did you have uh, patrons was, and people? And Well, I always loved libraries. But in fact, this was a mobile library, which was a big van, which used to come to my little village once a week because I lived in the country. And so that was a major source of books and reading materials. And uh, yeah, I sort of absorbed this book. Another book that blew my mind a, a year later was The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. Mm -hmm. And amongst other fascinating ideas. He sort of made the analogy between DNA code and computer code. And he also described how you could use computers to sort of model life and behavior with game theory. And I just thought this sounded amazingly cool. So I, I taught myself to program out of an electronics magazine that had a couple of articles about it. And so, so what I, was your first computer? Well, I'd learned programming without a computer because at that time, this was 1976, they weren't really available to someone with, with my means. And even at schools, they weren't available either. So I had first to learn without a computer and then try and get some time on various computers and try writing my own that was a That was a punch card era. Yeah. I mean, my first programs that I could you know work on and then take away we're on a pink roll of punched paper tape so it's a little before i was learning fortran and having that gigantic stack of cards to be able to code anything yeah well this was the stone age of computing but you know things got the going pretty quickly computers. got mm -hmm. going pretty quickly after that and then i remember the first episode of pc world where you had the nascom one on the cover and the idea that as a monitor, you didn't need a special expensive computer monitor. You could plug it into a television and you could store programs on a cassette player. Or on, you could store programs on a little cassette recorder. So that sort of made it punk in a way, if you like, and made it accessible. And I thought that was quite exciting and cool as well. So when, would, when did you start doing live shows? Around, uh, say, 1988, 89. What was the state of music that you were coming into in London or in England back then? Well, that time, the late 80s, was a pretty exciting time. What you'd had was in the, in the mid-80s, a bunch of young people of all different colours and races and types coming together, uh, sort of under the, a common love of music and, and getting high and wanting to have a good time with each other. So it became a sort of a cultural melting pot in London based on music and these warehouse parties, which were often sort of illegal 
events where we just take over a building and have a party there for a night. And then I think three things sort of occurred at the same time. One was the availability of cheap electronic music technology, the sampler and the sequencer. Another was the advent of house music, which was a sort of huge energy boost in terms of a new, really exciting sound, which you know, it was clear to me when I first heard it that this was going to go far. And then I wasn't so plugged into this, but I think the advent of ecstasy sort of hyped up the scene and helped those parties be really great and, and important experiences spiritually and socially for many people as well. That all happened kind of in the late 80s in, in London, and it took off big time. So how was technology then part of your creating life? Were you hauling around electronic equipment everywhere? Were you creating recordings that would become then? I mean, so what was the tech side of what you were doing at that point in time? The tech side was based on turntables. You had these really good professional disco turntables by Technics called SL1200s. And if you wanted to be a DJ, you had to have a pair of SLs. And if you had that and a, a mixer with a crossfader on, you could start mixing two records together at once. And, you know, that was the, the origin of hip-hop and the origin of, of the term breakbeat. And the, the DJ, as someone who knew what people liked, had a great record collection and had a knowledge of the, what were the best bits on each record, became instrumental in putting together records using those techniques and bringing them to dance floors and parties where people could enjoy them. So it became a sort of side, a way to sidestep the, the, the monopoly that the record business had on making records, which was all about if you weren't on radio, if you weren't on pop music radio, then you were nowhere. But we didn't really need that because we had our 12-inch singles and we had the clubs and, and the festivals and the parties and people going to them having life-changing times and then going out to seek out that music. It was, uh, it was really an exciting time and actually the shockwaves of that are still reverberating that provided a lot of the basis for the last 30 years of electronic music. So you got into radio, didn't you? I'm understanding that Solid State was part of your background? Solid Steel was our long-running radio Solid Steel, show. sorry Solid Steel, that. yeah. and that's actually that's a reference to the turntables because they were called the wheels of solid steel, where your, your turntables, your decks. Yeah, as part of the scene in London, actually, you had a number of pirate stations. Again, the establishment didn't recognise the youth's interest in black music, in hip-hop, and in this, these new forms of house and techno, and provided a pretty staid, boring diet of music for the youth. And typically, we wanted something else, especially in London, in other cities as well, like Manchester and Bristol. But I was in London, and there was quite a, a hot pirate radio scene. And I joined KISS FM, which was the leading pirate. Uh, Jonathan was already on there, and he, he got me on. And you know, at that time, we had most of the leading DJs in London were on KISS FM. We had Tim Westwood, we had Norman Jay, Judge Jules, Joey Jay, Manasseh, Colin Favor, Colin Dale, Paul Trouble Anderson, Patrick Forge. I, I could go on and on. And these were, were, were my mates. <laughs> and you know, we represented a, a sort of illuminati of London music, but I, I think in a positive way, because we were all there taking this risk of being on Pirate Station because we loved the music and we, wanted, we knew people wanted to hear it and they weren't being catered for. What was the risk? 
They could put you in prison um, and <laughs> worse, they could take your record collection, which for DJs <laughs> <laughs> about the worst thing that can happen to you. So that was a real risk. And I remember broadcasting from Manassa. Manassa, they were a reggae, two reggae DJs and from their council flat. And, you know, being well aware that we could be busted and, you know, suffer quite severe consequences for this. But in the end, some licenses became available. Long story short, Kiss FM eventually got a license and we stayed with it for a while. But inevitably, it got commodified and commercialized to such an extent that all the founders left. And now it's just another kind of pop music station that plays a bit more dance music than the other ones. So what then became the journey of Cold Cut and Ninja Tune? Well, at that time, and this is now the early 90s, we'd self-released some records. We'd started putting these sample-based records out there, and people were buying them. And so we'd started our own label. And then we got signed to a, another label that saw that we had you know, a new sound to offer. And we had some hit records when they put us together with some of their vocalists, one of whom was Yaz. We had a, a number one record with a track called The Only Way Is Up, cover of an, an American soul record. And then Lisa Stansfield, who you may know as well, very mm -hmm. good English white soul singer with a terrific voice and great songwriting ability. And we had a big hit with her called People Hold On. I came to New York at that time, actually, to um, promote the record. And we were on Tommy Boy, which was one of the American hip-hop labels that me and my yeah. mates had used to follow. So that was quite uh, a buzz. And yeah, we were pushing on putting out these records. But long story short, we got into a bad contractual situation with the record company. They didn't pay us what they owed us. We audited them once, right? And the auditor said they owed us 300,000. We never got it. And then they were saying, look, just crank the handle and put out some more records like this, make some more hits. And John and I really, in a way, we just didn't know how to do that because we'd just done it from love and wanting to do something new. And we had other sounds which we wanted to do and other experiments that we wanted to do. So with, long story short, we started Ninja Tune as an escape route so that we could get our identity back and keep releasing music. And that's, that, that took off. And you know, I'm sitting in the Ninja Tune building now speaking to you because that's become... You only really need one good business idea. And if you've got one good business idea, then it, it can free you up to still be able to do more experimental stuff and follow your own nose. So that, that's been Ninja Tune. So let me then pull that to the current era because you have such a great history of both being rebellious and experimental and working with others in the middle of the heat of a new direction and moment. And so now you come out with JamPro here. We're in February of 2020, and I think it's been out less than two weeks. That's Why right. and how uh, did this become your experiment that you are now moving forward with? Yeah, really, it's been 25 years that we've been working on this kind of new software instrument that, as I mentioned, is I wanted something that was more natural for, for a hip-hop mindset, for a sample and cut and based aesthetic. And the existing approaches didn't really seem right. And so we wanted our own instrument. And so through the 90s, I worked with uh, different software engineers. I, I did get a job as a programmer at one time and it became <laughs> too hard and I preferred DJing. But being able to <laughs> at least have a an understanding of what was possible with code enabled me to become a, mm -hmm. a designer and work with software engineers to 
realise some ideas on these um, types of instruments. So in the 90s, we had a, an audio-visual programme called VJAM, and we had a four-track loop mixer called DJAM, which ran on Windows NT on a laptop. And we used to use these for our live shows because we wanted to do a live audio-visual electronic sample-based show in, where we could improvise and not just be tied down to a timeline, but do more than we could do with turntables and not take our whole studio on the road. And the, it's been... Um, that, that trip that's taken us to Feb 2020 and the release of, of Jam. Seven years ago, we released Ninja Jam, which is very much a forerunner of the current Jam Pro program. And yeah, my ambition was to try and create the world's most advanced beat instrument and give it away so as many people as possible could enjoy the excitement that John and I have enjoyed so much of playing with electronic sound. And, um, so, so Ninja Jam was on what platform? It was a that, that was it was also on iOS, but we also did convert it for Android. So I wanted very much to include the Android community, who get quite upset because music software is one of the weak points of, of Android because the hardware has not been sufficiently well designed for audio, and there's latency on it which means you press a button to play a sound and nothing happens for you know a few hundred milliseconds which is a killer for a music instrument can't work so that's a reason why the it's only like one percent of the music software available on android that there is on ios i'm not a huge apple fanboy I, I think they're you know a company like other companies but i will say that their emphasis on quality audio has been a great boost for music makers and for them because what it did was garner them a huge audience of hipsters who made music and we all had to do it on Apple because that was by far the easiest way to get something that worked. Um, and when they launched the iPhone, that was when I jumped back into software development because I'd sort of gone into a brick wall with it really. I, I couldn't resource it. NinjaTune weren't really that interested because they were like, well, Matt, we make records. We don't know anything about selling boxes of software. And that physical distribution was a problem. But when Apple launched the App Store to sell software for these touchscreen devices, I was like, okay, we can jump back in here because now we can make something and distribute it worldwide. And that was a great step forward. So for Ninja Jam, you also then got sort of the community marketing chops that goes with it. So found kindred spirits. How was that and how, how did that grow over time? We had the good fortune when we launched Ninja Jam that I got a letter from someone at Apple saying, we're thinking of including this for a special feature. And my mate I was working on with it, a guy called Matt Earp, said, you know, people wait years for a letter like that. <laughs> and eventually we found out that this chap at Apple was a big fan of Ninja Tune. And I have found rather uh, gratifyingly that whilst we're not necessarily selling billions of copies or have an audience of billions, uh, Ninja Tune has a great audience of creatives. Uh, I found a lot of people who are programmers, uh, computer animators, film editors, different types of electronic creatives, listen to our music. I think maybe because it, a lot of it's instrumental, but yet it's not just total wallpaper. So we do have a good intelligence switched on fan base for Ninja Tune. And this guy reached out and they did give us a special feature. And in that first couple of weeks, we had, a, I think, 150,000 downloads, which was a great start. 
but the, the app was free and we were selling in-app purchases which is how you're supposed to make money if you've got a free app extra bits of uh, bundles of sound mm-hmm. really that people could purchase but it, it fell off quite quickly as it's interesting how things do have a short lifetime nowadays often because mm-hmm. there is so much coming out did you know there's a thousand apps a day released on ios and that for the majority of apps after they're downloaded they're never ever used again that's right that's unfortunately the sad statistics i mean on for music there's forty thousand tracks a day on spotify added i heard so i'm glad we started out when we did and managed to build a you know a modest reputation then because it's whilst it's great that anyone can make music now and get your music out there on web fantastic democratization i'm a big fan of that and i've always promoted that but it is hard because everyone is doing it so you have created a tool that people can then create content on their own with samples and pieces and parts and the rights are pre-cleared well at the initial ninja jam was mainly provided with content where it was copyright material from ninja tune artists so what you could do was remix it and make your own version now djing and mashup and remixing are all things cold cut are associated with and that it's an art form you don't necessarily think that you're creating your own original work it's a co-collaboration but if i remix a, a bonobo track on ninja jam it's still a bonobo track I realized that what people wanted to do was make their own track. So we've done that in two ways. Firstly, by meaning that you can put in your own samples. In fact, you can record your own voice or your own guitar playing or anything directly into the app and use that as the starting point. And also we provide what we call sound sets of pre-cleared audio samples that you can do with whatever you like in terms of building a track. So you could buy a sound set on Jam Pro for $1.99 make a track out of it and have a number one record and you would not owe us any royalties. I'm a Android smartphone person and an iPad creation person. Okay. So could I use this to work with other people? Is this more of a connected platform or is this more of a solo space? It's more of a solo space, to be quite honest, at the moment. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which one can use it collaboratively. You know, a, a large part of my motivation was to make an instrument that I could actually use because I can't play drums or bass or let alone piano. I'm a, I'm a sort of hacker of sound who got lucky and I wanted something that was flexible and, and more powerful than turntables. So the other day I was in the studio working on our new record with a fantastic jazz pianist called Joe Amon Jones. And at the end of the session, I said, do you fancy a quick jam? He was like, sure. So. He played the piano, I dialed Jam up on my iPad, loaded some ambient sounds and um, pressed record and I turned stem recording on which is quite a powerful function that means that everything I do, the different parts are recorded separately, which gives you a lot more flexibility to work on them later. And so we jammed for about 10 minutes, I took the recordings and did quite a lot of work on it and that's going to be the, the last track on our next record. A nice ambient track it's called swift gathering and so in terms of collaboration you can collaborate as you would with a guitar or another instrument it's an it's an instrument for one person to play actually more than one person can play on jam at a time because you've got a nice big screen on say an ipad pro and i've had sessions where i've had two people playing at once and i've also got a system in development where 
you can network several of the devices together and have sort of one instance of Jam, which is a bit like, do you know, systems like the Tonto, the famous huge modular synth that yeah. Malcolm Cecil built. You know, you can consider Jam as a kind of huge modular synth for beats. It's actually a lot to control for one person all at a time. So you could split that up and have more than one person playing with it. That's something I'm experimenting with. Then there's Ableton Link, which is this great system that Ableton released that enables people on different apps to synchronize them together over Wi-Fi very easily. Something that in the past used to, you know, years of my life have gone trying to get different <laughs> devices to talk to each other. Now with Ableton Link, many things can just, you just turn it on and it just works, which is, uh, you know, a huge boost. And so you can sit around and I've done this, you know, with a bunch of people, some can be on their phones, some on iPads, some with keyboard apps, some with Ninja Jam, Jam Pro, some with drum machine apps, and you can all kind of synchronize together. And my ambition is to get the whole world jamming. So I am at a music school. Okay. How would a device like this change how we could or should be teaching music? I think it's a valid instrument for learning music, certainly electronic music. You know, an iPad is, let's face it, a fairly uh, expensive device, but then so is a guitar or indeed a Pioneer CDJ 1000, which is a sort of turntable of today. So I think, and you know, you can, if you've got an iPad as well, this is the wonderful thing about computers, you can load different programs onto it and do different things with it. So I think it's a great platform. I like the fact that on my app, I can read what the clips are and can read the different controls on the interface. My ear can hear what I'm doing. My hand can touch directly onto that and my brain can sort of put it all together. So it combines all those things into one interface in a way that feels very natural to me. And well, it's up to people to try it and see if, if it's to their taste. As I say, the Ninja Jam app is still out there and that's available for Android as well. So many people can check that out. In a way, it's Jam Pro's main function over that is that you can record in and load your own samples. A lot of the other stuff is the same. It, Jam Pro is like 10 times more complicated and powerful, yes, but you can get a good taste of it from Ninja Jam um, and see if you like messing around with, with samples in this way. So you now have done two app releases of, of not, that are not necessarily incremental to each other. What was it like and what have been the surprises of releasing an app in 2020 versus your prior release? That's a, that's a hard question. The volume of everything has turned up, as I was saying before. So there's a lot more competition now than there was there. So you have to sort of try harder to even get noticed at all. On the other hand, I think we learned quite a lot from the first release. The, our various playlists and stuff, getting feedback from people and an answering people's questions. I've spent some time making a series of how-to videos, which I, I used, my, both my parents were teachers, artist teachers, and I, I like teaching, giving something back as well being told that my how-to videos are pretty pretty good and people can check those out and that will help them penetrate the more complex aspects of the app. There's also in-app help for every screen and function in the app. There's one button, you touch it and you get an overlay on the screen that tells you what everything does. So if um, people are like me and don't like reading the manual, that's a bit of a time save. Um, and oftentimes there's no manual at all. Well, uh, that I, a lot of people expect <laughs> that there is one and then they are wanting videos to take them through the process. So. I've written the manual. Uh, getting all this stuff together for the app, I sort of 
joked that it was a bit like perhaps getting the bar mitzvah ready for one's, one's son or daughter. <laughs> so um, not that I've been to that many, but I understand that, you know, when you get your child ready to launch to the world, you want to make sure that its outfit is good and that they've got everything and that the food is good for the guests and that everything's in, in place and nice. So it's been quite satisfying doing that. I didn't mind writing the manual. In fact, I've tried to write the manual as a kind of almost a basic course in electronic music. I, I think there's a lot further to go. But the nice thing about you know, not having to have a printed book and a physical box is that you can keep iterating, you can keep changing and improving things. So I aim to do that with the manual. Yeah, does that answer your, your question? It does. I okay. Actually, I do a lot of work with adults learning to use new technologies outside the university. And it is fascinating the different ways that people need and expect support nowadays in learning. They expect to be able to go onto a search engine and immediately get help from somebody as to the exact spec of exactly what they're trying to do. At the same time, they're hoping the organization can do that same heavy lifting. So it's a, it's an interesting vocabulary of support that you need to provide nowadays. Yeah, but then, you know, the Church of YouTube is a wonderful thing, and I've been on there for learning all kinds of things, like, you know, how to mend a, a broken pipe and you know, things that are well out of my comfort zone of technology. So there's a lot more availability. I sometimes think that the... The situation we're in is pretty exciting. It's like the human race, as, a, as an, an organism, has had a huge upgrade to our nervous system. And we're still at the early stages of learning how to use that. The, the internet and communications technology generally amounts to an upgrade of our joint nervous system of connectivity. And so that's pretty exciting. And perhaps a reason why we're, you know, flopping around a bit like a baby trying to learn how to coordinate itself. We won't have full mastery for a while yet, but perhaps it will be leading somewhere good. Have you seen the Kevin Kelly video on the first 5,000 days of the internet? No, I remember Kevin from Wired and no, I haven't seen that. No. So it's been almost 5,000 days since that video which really looked at that that gestation of the baby when was that and actually looks at it in 4,700 days ago or something like that so it's okay. it's it's not recent but it's trying to envision where the heck this is all going from this as exactly the similar framing of upgrading our joint nervous system mm -hmm. and it actually has some interesting metaphors around it uh, but that actually Matt, leads me to my last question which is the so where where are you upgrading your nervous system? Where are you going to from this now that you have this released? What are your next adventures? My next adventures? Uh, do you know, it's strange because a couple of years ago, I made a decision to not just start loads more new projects, but to finish off existing projects. And mm -hmm. um, I've been managed to achieve that fairly successfully. We've got a couple of other apps out, actually. One of them is a, a granule visual synthesizer, which are, is a, possibly a new concept. Um, you can find that on the App Store. It's called Bogus Order Pixie, P-I-X-I. And you know, it's uh, been pretty much ignored, actually, but I think it's quite good fun. There's a game called Robbery in which you have to jail the banksters, the banksters who've stolen all our money and get them into jail. Then I released Midivolve, which was a sort of arpeggiator on steroids, Max for Live device for Ableton. We've also finished our new record, which is called Keller Kettler, and is not all samples, it's all real music with proper musicians playing, some great jazz musicians from South Africa and some great London talent and anti-ballast from New York on horns and that's going to come out in June. So in a way, my uh, desk is cleared in a way which it hasn't been for decades. And, and part of that is, you know, I've 
I, I, I wanted to get my instrument and then have fun playing with it. That's what I want to do now. I actually want to make music and perhaps pull back a bit from being a developer and somewhat uneasily straddling this being a software developer and being an artist. So I'm going to uh, Berkeley in Valencia to teach a bit there. I've got some other good okay. teaching opportunities coming up. There's a very cool woman called Elisha, actually, who teaches there, who did, who did the sample set, which is included with the app called um, Quantum Trap. And so I'm hoping to have a, a good time just making music, but I still think the app can go a lot further. And depending on, you know, partly on the enthusiasm with which it's received, that will motivate me to keep taking it further. I think, you know, we've already got a long feature list of other things which it could do. And that is pretty exciting as well. But, you know, I do have one thing very much on my mind. And that is where on Earth we are going with humanity and the planet with various plausible tipping points of environmental collapse looking more likely by the day. And various nutters seem to be at the steering wheel with their foot down on the accelerator, herring towards the edge of the cliff. And it's not very funny. So I want to spend more time involved in activism pro-environmental and pro-political activism to hopefully contribute something towards solution and sometimes i feel that i've been fiddling while rome burns in a quite literal way and i want to pivot more towards trying to be yeah trying to get involved in in uh, solutions to that You've, you've mentioned quite a few things. How would you want someone to reach out to connect with you on any of these exciting and intriguing dimensions, including the last one? Well, we've got our different sites like jampro.net and coldcut.net. We have a Facebook uh, page for the app. And so I'm involved a bit with Extinction Rebellion. I, I'm not sure to what extent that's taken off in the States. I think there has been some activity there. So... I would check out Roger Hallam's book. He's one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, and he's written a book called Common Sense for the 21st Century, which is a reference to Thomas Paine's book, Common Sense, which I think many Americans will know. And you can get that as a free download on Roger Hallam, H-A-L-L-A-M dot com. And that's a manual for sort of what we might do about this and for, for rebellion, because I think some new thinking on that's needed. I would just say to everyone, success is not necessarily about making a million pounds and having a number one record with music. Success is, in musical terms for me, is enjoying music, enjoying playing with music and enjoying making music with people. And um, I think that's, that's available to many of us. So come amongst it. I'll, I'll see you in the, the musical idea sphere somewhere. Whilst we do that, let's keep in mind that we're alive and on a sort of tightrope, I think, crossing over to a new point in humanity's evolution. Um, let's keep our nerve, keep our balance, and enjoy the excitement. Well, thank you for joining us. I will put all those links in the show notes. And I am looking forward to both playing with the app myself and creating music and maybe even a new intro for this podcast and uh, looking at your continuing adventures. Thank you very much for joining us. And that wraps up our episode of Innovating Music. Thanks for listening. 
You can find us at innovatingmusic.org, which takes you to all the right places in the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music webpage. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook with a fairly new Facebook group to have conversations about this episode. You can find us on Twitter, all on Innovating Music, as well as you can find our links from our innovatingmusic.org page. You can find all of our past podcasts. We're finding more and more that people are listening to lots of past podcasts. So please go back in and enjoy and share the ones you really like. Share ideas and where you'd like us to come and continue to enjoy episodes of Innovating Music. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites and you can find those in the show notes.